to the doing effect. My name is Tom Mitchell and I'm a professional rugby sevens player and Olympian. And on this podcast, I'm going to explore the worlds of people who are truly making the most of their days. We will be going behind the curtain to listen to the stories, lessons and lives of people doing great things to hear how they live out the doing effect. This podcast is brought to you by Days Brewing, alcohol-free beer for people who want to make more of their most precious commodity, time. Brewed in Scotland, their 0% lager and pale ale are available on their website and 2% of sales are donated to mental health initiatives. Listeners can use the code DOING15 for 15% off their first order at daysbrewing.com. Today's guest is Dr. Rupi Orjla, an expert in medicine and an expert in food, and most importantly, an expert in combining the two. A practicing NHS GP working in emergency medicine, Rupi has taken a passion for food and taken it beyond his own patients by founding The Doctor's Kitchen, which strives to inspire and educate people about the beauty of food as well as the medicinal effects of eating well. His website, social media channels and podcasts are an outpouring of creativity in the form of recipes and ideas, but it's creation with a purpose, that of altering perception, reframing how we see food and how we might benefit from making certain choices. All the while, Rupi backs up his output with clinical research, research initially sparked by his own health scare, which he tells us about. Rupi and I first met last year when we were on a panel for a charity that supports medical professionals with their mental health. I was really impressed with his knowledge and passion, and this episode contains loads of that, including advice on nutrition and some super interesting topics to take forward. But more than that, we tap into Rupi's experience of building the doctor's kitchen from scratch, his vision for the future, and how we can approach potentially divisive subject matter in these tricky times. Rupi, great to be chatting to you again. Um, it's been a while since we, we first met and first chatted, so it's great to get you on The Doing Effect. One of the things I always try and do with The Doing Effect is make it relatable. And food, last time I checked, is something that everyone can relate to. Um, yeah. So hopefully we're ticking that box today to some extent. Um, but looking at food, has it always been something that's been a passion for you? Yeah, yeah, it really has. You know, like um, I was actually chatting to someone about this yesterday about where the sort of foodie element came from. And for me, it was growing up in a Punjabi household. Both of my parents are, are Indian Punjabi and my mum is like the cook extraordinaire. Like her, her base is, is Indian cooking. So, you know, we'd have like Punjabi masalas and we'd had rajma, which is like a, a red bean curry. Um, we'd have chicken biryani, we'd do all that kind of stuff. But then she would also be quite experimental. She would do Italian food, Thai, Vietnamese, loads of different Malay curries and all that kind of stuff. Um, because India is like a melting pot of loads of different cultures. So it's quite easy to sort of, you know, go out into different sort of uh, cultures. And it's, it's just something that we've always had in our household. Um, and the f in terms of TV, we always used to have like the Food Channel on or Saturday Kitchen or something like that. It was always on in the household, always. We, we would literally eat food and then watch food being prepared and we're like, okay, we want that next time. Like I, I vividly remember these things. So when I went to medical school, just before I went to medical school, that was when my mom said, you know, you, you need to start cooking yourself. And uh, she taught me a recipe. It was a Thai lemongrass curry. 
Um, and it was, you know, with Galangal and Thai Basil and, you know, all, all the nuts and bolts into it. And it, the way she explained it to me was so, so simple. So I went to medical school knowing how to cook this dish. And everyone thought I was like this crazy good cook who could just like knock up this dish in no time. When in reality, I only had like a repertoire of like two or three dishes. So I had to keep up this pretense of like being this good cook. Uh, and that's that's kind of like how I, I, I just kept up being a foodie, uh, I guess. Yeah. So it's, it's always been very important. That's it. I mean, she's teed you up with a great lesson there to take forward. Yeah, I also, exactly. I also love the thought that when you were younger, you were watching Saturday Kitchen and stuff. And now you're on those shows. Is that <laughs> yeah, weird? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's been like a bit of a dream come true. So during lockdown, when they started something called Daily Kitchen, which is like, you know, uh, a way to get people cooking every day and, and using um, uh, like just a, a very limited amount of store covered items because everyone was raiding the supermarkets at the time. Um, they were like, yeah, we, we'd like you to come on. And so it was literally like a dream country. When I got the call out, I was like, oh my God, I've been wanting to do this show for so long. And they've always, they've always said no because uh, they thought I wasn't foodie enough and I was a bit too medical, I was a bit too health conscious and all that kind of stuff, which I totally understand because it's not really the show for that. But I think ever since that episode, they were like, we want this guy on again. And fingers crossed, I will eventually make it to the studio where I can actually cook live. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a bit of a pipe dream uh, for me. I, I literally watch that show every week, every single week without fail. I, I, I've learned so much from Matt Tebbett and um, James Martin about how they can cook and hold a conversation and not mess up. And, you know deal with live tv like it's it's an art you know that i'm i'm gradually learning myself the <laughs> ultimate multitasking i think yeah <laughs> <laughs> like it's pretty it's pretty clear where your kind of interest in food and your your skill in terms of understanding how to work with different ingredients and stuff came from from your your family upbringing and everything but what about something that seems obvious to me is the um motivation you have to help people i mean one mm. I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, there was something in that in terms of wanting to be a doctor um, and yeah. work in the NHS. But now what you're doing in terms of the message you're putting out there about nutrition, about the benefits for people, where did that drive to reach out and actually help improve other people's lives? Because that's not something that everyone has necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really good point. I think perhaps in this point in time, we've never felt more empathy for other people. Um, you know, on a global level, everyone kind of understands how everyone's sort of feeling. And I think now there's this sort of like genuine love for other people and, and trying to look after other people. But I, I take your point. It's like that, that altruism isn't always instilled in people. And certainly not everyone wants to dedicate their life to, you know, going to healthcare or medicine or nutrition or whatever it, it, with the, the aim of trying to help people solely. So that for me kind of came about when I was a teenager. So my, my mum got ill with, um, she used to suffer from anaphylaxis and she actually used a nutrition and lifestyle approach to, to actually reverse her condition. I remember um, I had to practice giving, well, I didn't know this, this is another story. So she, she gave me an EpiPen and said, look, I'm having an anaphylactic shock. You need to inject me. And I was like, and I was, I think I must've been 12 something like 12, 30, very young, very scared as well. So I grabbed this EpiPen, took the lid off. And she was like, you need to stab it into my thigh like now. And so if you've ever used an EpiPen before, the way it works is you, you push down into 
um, the, the thigh um, very firmly until it clicks and that click activates a mechanism and it shoots in a needle in and out and that delivers a dose of adrenaline. And so I clicked and then, and then uh, that, that was it. And then she was like, okay, so that was a dummy EpiPen. EpiPen. <laughs> so now you know what to do if you ever need to use the EpiPen. I remember feeling so scared. I was like, how on earth could you do that? But that really sparked my interest in, in medicine. It was, it was her experience. It was that one particular thing that was like, oh, maybe medicine is something quite interesting that I could do. Um, and ever since then, I, I've, I've always wanted to, to be in that medical field, to do something that helps people live healthier, happier lives. And with the, um, and, and both my parents are in, in business and stuff. They actually didn't want me to be a, a doctor, which is quite funny coming from an Indian background, you know, not your parents, <laughs> not wanting to be a doctor, but I was pretty adamant. Um, and the, and the nutritional aspect that came out of my, my own experience. So when I qualified as a doctor about 12 years ago now, um, I started suffering from a heart condition called atrial fibrillation which is where your heart beats exceptionally fast and irregularly, like 200 beats per minute. Um, long story short, I was going to have something called an ablation. And it was my mum, who's not a medic, who said to me, look, you, you need to really look at your diet and your lifestyle. And at the time, you know, a new junior doctor, not sleeping well, stressed out of my mind, eating soggy sandwiches from the hospital canteen, not looking after my nutrition, it may have had an impact on these episodes that were happening two to three times a week and Im impacting my, you know, my ability to, to do my job. And so that was the, and w when I took that nutrition lifestyle over about a year with the blessing of my cardiologist, I was actually able to reverse my condition. And up to that point, I had no nutrition training whatsoever throughout medicine in, in my medical training. And I remember just feeling like this is super, super unfair. And so that's how I kind of came around to the idea of a having more open, honest conversations with patients about food and how you can eat your way to health. B doing a, a deep dive into the into the literature uh, for me, and C starting Culinary Medicine, which is my nonprofit where I, I where we teach the new generation of doctors how to cook so they can look after themselves, but also how they can elevate the conversation around nutrition. And, and I guess Doctor's Kitchen, which is my sort of commercial and, and, and platform right now, is, um, you know, an iteration of that. It's, it's how I try and um, encourage everyone to, to eat well, to motivate themselves to eat well, and the reasons why that, that is the case too. So there's a long, really, really long-winded answer to your question there, mate. <laughs> no, you, you've, you've kind of, no, that's really good. I mean, you've, you've covered like the full... To kind of time period of how you got to where you've got to now but i'm kind of curious like there must have been stages along the way where either you thought oh this is a thing i can take this big and i can mm. i'm gonna write some i'm gonna write some cookbooks um yeah. which you've got three out now um including bestsellers and doing really well and then you must have thought oh actually i can set up culinary medicine and educate doctors and create a community about that and it you know, where were the moments where you thought, actually, I can make a thing of this and I can take this beyond just my, my practice, my GP practice? Yeah, it's a really good question, man, because I think when I started The Doctor's Kitchen, I was actually living in Australia. So I was out there for two years after I qualified as a GP. Um, and I had the idea of The Doctor's Kitchen like back in 2011, but 
I was quite scared to, you know, put myself out there talking about food as medicine, you know, who's this doctor, he's a bit woo-woo, all this stuff. So <laughs> when I was out in Australia, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to post these recipe videos and put a few blog posts out and just see what happens <clears throat> as, a, like, as like a passion project sort of thing. And, you know, if I influence a few uh, people, even if it's just my own patients, that's good enough for me. Just put it out there, you know, with pure love and, and just see what happens. Uh, and that kind of snowballed since then. So on Instagram, I quickly gained a few thousand followers. And then when I came back to the UK, I got approached by a publisher and they were like, we, we see this as a cookbook. And I was like, get out of here. This is like, what are you talking about? I'm working in the NHS. I'm working in A&E. Like, you know, this is the, the, this, that, you know, what you're talking about. And so um, the, the aim was never really to, to, to become a, a cookbook author or podcaster or, you know, any these things kind of just like occurred and happened organically. And I think, um, over the last couple of years, it's only since the last couple of years that I'm really like, okay, instead of going with the flow and being dragged into all these different situations, which I feel like I'm being pulled into now, right? Like, oh, you can do this TV show, you can present this, or we'd like you to do a podcast on that, or, you know, how about this brand deal? It's kind of like, okay, well, what do I want to do? What do I really want to achieve? And I've, I've sort of distilled the purpose of The Doctor's Kitchen, if we're just talking about that for now into um our purpose i guess which is to help 10 million people eat doctor's kitchen meals every single day and it's a really grand sort of idea and really grand mission but i think it's scary but i think it's achievable over the next five years and the way we're gonna you know uh, manifest that is through tech it's through cookbooks it's through podcasts and putting out great free content there as well um, so, so it's a that's great mission kind to have. Of, that's a great, yeah. it's a great mission to have. And, and what, what I'm taking from that, and it's something that I think about a lot and reflect on a lot is I think generally people look at someone with a big following, public figure like yourself. Certainly I'm looking at you with your million of millions of podcast downloads and chart topping on the podcast thinking, how can I get that with this podcast? But, you know, people are aspirational and they want to know how to you know connect up the dots to get to that point um and something i hear time and time again you've said exactly the same is that it starts with actually just following the passion and exploring the passion and kind of putting yeah. some time and energy into that and kind of seeing where it goes but what about the backlash this is something i've thought when i've been reading your stuff because people are um people don't like to be told what to do and, and part mm. of your challenge, I guess, is getting people to think differently. And if you can yeah. achieve that, that's the secret in life, I guess, of, of leading in any form. But you must have had some people come back to you. And, I don't know. Have you had any of that either online or in person? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, like this was kind of what I was fearful of between 2011 and 2015 before I even started The Doctor's Kitchen and put myself out there. I was like, what will people think? you know, what will my colleagues think? Will I bring the the reputation of medicine into disrepute? You know, all these different things that prevent you from doing what you inherently know is good and, and accurate and trustworthy and genuine. And I think I took a lot of time to convince myself of that before I put anything out there. But even when you put anything out there, people 
whether that's from a pace, place of insecurity or vulnerability or jealousy or whatever it is, whatever that emotion or feeling is, you know, they will want to attack anyone because they have a following, because they have a voice, because they have, they're putting stuff out there that they might disagree with as well. So what, what kind of stuff th- do you get if you don't mind me asking? Like, cause, yeah, cause I yeah, mean, of it's, course. it's kind of hard to imagine because, you know, I, I, so I, I don't know you really well, but you know, you're a lovely guy. Um, and I can't really see where people will come at. What, what kind of stuff do you get? Uh, so I've had people in the past, um, fellow doctors in, 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 in fact, um, say publicly on their own social accounts that I'm a charlatan. Um, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm, um, you know, giving people false hope. Um, I'm, uh, portraying nutrition in an inaccurate light. Uh, I'm saying that I can cure things like cancer and, and all this, all this rubbish. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, that, that was pretty stinging actually. Some of these people I used to, uh, call colleagues as well. Um, so that's definitely been a journey. I think that's going to happen regardless of, um, you know, how careful you are. You can't please everyone. And I think, you know, even in the nutrition world, nutrition worlds are are very dogmatic, right? You've got the low carbers, you've got vegans, you have paleo, you have all these different camps. And people love to be in a tribe and protect that tribe. It's sort of like innate in our DNA. It's our evolutionary history to be part of a community and want to protect that community as much as possible. In the same way, people want to protect the medical establishment and that fraternity, uh, or whatever we call it this day, today, which is more politically correct. So, you know, I can understand why people react like that. Um, and, it, you know, if I post something with an egg on it, people are like, oh, my God, how could you how could you do that? You're exploiting a chicken and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, you're going to get that. And I think... Luckily, the, the way my um, social media accounts and all that kind of stuff has, has grown has been fairly steady. So I've, I've been able to react to it and actually process my own emotions through it. If that happened overnight, I don't think I'd have the maturity to, to deal with those negative comments. Um, but it's a good question because I, 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 think, I don't think we really talk about this side uh, as much as we should. Well, I, I, I agree. I mean, and... It- the, the thing the world needs right now, if you ask me, is um, to practice dealing with nuance and dealing, you know, yeah. not being polarized on things. And actually, uh, I think that's something that, you know, in the opening pages of your most recent book, do really well. And actually even admitting that you don't know it all and you don't know the answers to everything. You don't have a definitive answer. And I just think that's such a simple but powerful thing to be able to project when you're when, when essentially you're trying to be an authority on a subject, but actually you can mm. be an authority on something and say, I don't know all the answers. And when it comes to the diet thing, it's something I've experienced more recently trying to explore uh, a more plant-based diet. I think a lot of people in, maybe in sports, but probably particularly in rugby, in my experience is traditionally meat-eating diets, mm. uh, quite heavily reliant on that. Um, and so shifting away from that, you do, and it's not, you know, I'm not being trolled or anything online. Like most people don't really care, but there's just little comments. And then you realize that that's probably coming from a place where people do feel threatened that you, by changing yeah. what you're doing, you're threatening something that they believe in. Um, yes. Yeah. And then, but then, you know, if you're not really robust, 
um, it does make you question what you're doing, even in a small, you know, yeah. small change as an individual. Um, but it is something that does shift over time. And already, like, you can see how many sports people, and I know a lot of it's been fueled by documentaries um, that are out there, but, you know, it, there is a shift. And I guess it's just if you're at the front of that shift, uh, which you have been in, in a lot of ways, you've just got to weather a bit more of the stuff that people want to throw around that's, that's yeah. not, not that nice, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, like, the thing, I, I guess... Um, which is important to remember, I think, is we're trying to express and publicly process human emotions in character-limited digital platforms, right? So, you know, we have a comment box, we have a short space where we can express something that's that's probably very, very important to that individual. And it's obviously going to be portrayed in the wrong way and probably understood in an incorrect way and misinterpreted. So, and that just fuels the fire, fuels the fire. So, that, so it's no wonder like you have these like Twitter storms and Twitter fights and, and stuff. It, it's just, it, it's going to happen. And so my, I think the antidote to that is more nuance exactly and actually acceptance of the nuance. And also there's a, a um, uh, there's a concept in statistics. I'm not a st statistician by any stretch of the imagination. I'm terrible at stats. But uh, it's called regression to the mean, which is where you have all these different um, sort of uh, uh, fields or di different values. And over time, they all come down to the middle way, essentially. You, you kind of see that trend uh, happening. And it, again, it kind of lends itself to the concepts in Buddhism where it's the middle path. It's like, you know, you can have your views, you can have your views, but we can agree in the middle. And I think we need to focus on that, on that mean and, and on that middle way, because otherwise you end up spending all your time fighting on that 10% that you disagree on. Whereas actually there's a, there's a huge majority that you, you do agree on. And, and like to take your example about eating more plants, you know, that your shift hasn't been massively radical it's like you still eat a lot of different animal products and that's fine it's completely intuitive to you as to what you feel best and what fuels your best performance it doesn't really matter what other people think about that it's about your journey and you know if that inspires someone else to eat a bit better or maybe try something else that's got to be a net positive surely yeah i really agree with you and i think one thing i've learned reflecting on my own small process is um actually having the courage to do that it, is mm. not something that we should take for granted. And, and that's why I look at people who have put themselves out there a bit more with so much kind of respect. Um, last thing on the on the <laughs> the silly questions or the abuse people might give you, but do people ever yeah, pull yeah. you up if you if you ever seen eating like eating rubbish, eating crap? Like the people <laughs> like, hang on, you're supposed to be the healthy doctor that does the nutrition. Yeah. So so I regularly post stuff that I will eat when I'm on shift. Like the other day I uh I was on the wards and I had a there was a box of celebrations and I'm digging into that box of celebrations for sure, <laughs> right? Like when you're What's stressed, your favorite, you're running What's your around, favorite like, one? Uh, well, Snickers, I think. Yeah, oh, I'm it? a Snickers. Yeah, yeah. the little Snickers, you know, the nuts and yeah, it's just nice. And, and and if there's a Twix in there as well, I'll definitely go for the Twix. <laughs> but the thing is I would it's weird because I would never go out like well, maybe. I mean, I, ha I can't remember the last time I went to a sweet shop and bought a Snickers. 
I just find it way too sweet now. But the little mountain, you know, celebrations, whatever. But um, uh, this isn't a massive plug for celebrations. <laughs> there are the boxes out there. Um, but uh, but yeah, so you know, I just took a picture of that. I'm like, look, if you think I, I eat clean the whole time, you're wrong. Like I'm eating a whole variety of things and I'm eating junk too. And, and those tend to always get the most likes as well. Like whether it's a dirty burger or you know, sweets or Haribo or whatever, you know, it just demonstrates um, a sense of realism because even though I'm, I want to transition the Doctor's Kitchen into a brand in the same light as Headspace, uh, I, I I appreciate that at the moment it's still a personal brand. It's still very much a reflection of of me and people probably look at Doctor's Kitchen as Dr. Rupi Orchula, whereas in the future I want them to think Doctor's Kitchen you know, that's the place to, to learn about healthy eating and, and how to practice healthy eating every, every single day. Um, but yeah, yeah, my friends usually pull, pull me up on it. I remember I went to a stag, this is pre-COVID obviously. Uh, we're, in, um, we're in Amsterdam and I, uh, I was at the end of the night and you know, I don't know if you've ever been there, but like there's tourist stands everywhere. Like they, they always have baked like baked goods and stuff. And I'm just like diving into this church. I love churros. It's like one of my favorite desserts. And so, and everyone's like taking pictures. I'm like, you can, you can post it. I don't care. Like, it's totally fine. I'm completely comfortable with having churros every now and then. It's not something I do all the time, but yeah. It's the same thing we were just talking about, isn't it? Like people uh, understanding that we're human beings and that mm. you, you can't just expect someone to have the same view all the time or behave the same way all the time. Like we're, we're either going to, be varying our behaviors or maybe getting it wrong and like being all right with that and i think that's something that's again really important hi guys it's mike here from days hope you're enjoying the doing effect with rupee it's pretty hard to believe it's march already and we're already on to our third podcast episode we uh we just wanted to give you guys a quick update on what else we've been up to this month some of you may have seen we've introduced SMS messaging, which means you can now order your beers via text or, or ask, us question, ask us any questions or, or even simply just message us for a chat, which, which some of you guys have been doing already. We've, uh, we've also put the final touches on a really exciting partnership that we look forward to bringing you guys in, in April and May. Other than that, we've been busy brewing more beer and, and getting things set up for when things start to open up over the coming months. It's, it's great to finally see some good news coming through and a, and a positive roadmap. And we really can't wait to get out there and enjoy some beers in the real world with you all soon. As ever, we love getting all of your, all of your reviews and feedback to what we're doing here. So please do keep them coming. All right. Enjoy your days, folks. Getting on to a bit more of the like digging into some of the nutrition stuff. And let's start with what is probably a more obvious one um, and something that is, is more relevant to me recently. I've had a shift away from days, beers have been mm. quite a nice little uh, eye-opener for me in terms of how to still enjoy having a beer without the, the booze side of it. And what about the alcohol thing? Because it's something that is a massive part of our lives, but nutritionally, where does it sit in terms of your research and experience? Yeah, this is, so this is an interesting subject, right? Because um, for for me, I I kind of uh, got involved in drinking culture in medical school. It was kind of like um, like a way to connect with your fellow students. And when I say drinking culture, I don't mean like, like you know drinking every single day. It was like it was the social thing to do when when you when you have. So I used to play hockey. 
I wasn't good enough for rugby. But uh, <laughs> I used to play hockey and we'd have circles every Wednesday and circles would just be like everyone hanging around and, and, and drinking and stuff. And, and so that habitual sort of um, acceptance of like, okay, we go out and we have a drink. It has always been there. And it kind of permeates through post-medical school as well to an extent. But my relationship with alcohol has really changed over the last, uh, I would say, five or six years in that I'm less inclined to drink um, as often as I, as I was. I'm more sort of attuned to how I feel the next day uh, at a mental health point of view. And I rarely drink these days. In fact, when you guys sent me the, um, uh, the box of days and I had the, I love pale ale and I had it, it was like 4 p.m. because I knew it's no alcohol, so we'll try it. 4 p.m., it tastes so good. I remember there was this, um, this, this brand of pale ale in Australia and just took me back to there to, to, to drinking in like, you know, the afternoon and the sun and stuff like that. It tastes so good. And I, I, I kind of felt guilt-free because I knew I wasn't going to have a headache the next day. And I, I, I'm the kind of person now, because I don't drink that often, if I have more than a pint and a half, I will get a headache the next day. And that, that's just indicative of, of how things are for, for me on a personal level. When you dig into the nutritionals of alcohol, it's quite polarizing views. So we definitely drink way too much in the UK in, in terms of the amount of alcohol that we consume. There is a suggestion that a small amount of alcohol is part of the Mediterranean diet. And when I say a small amount, we're talking literally half a glass of red wine every couple of days. Um, there may be some cardioprotective benefits. Weighing that up against the potential downsides of alcohol, I don't think it's a good trade-off. So I'm now moving to the perspective that we should abstain from alcohol as much as possible. Um, and I used to be on the fence about that, but now I'm moving to, more towards that camp. We, we need to move to a more alcohol-free lifestyle as much as possible. And the reason why is because alcohol has a direct impact on your liver. So it, it, it has a hepatoxic effect. So it damages your liver cells. Habitual drinking is very easy to get into. It's, it's, a, it's an addictive substance and it's something that we need to be mindful of. And the other thing is, you know, it's associated with a number of other negative um, social side effects, um, as, as well as the suggestion that it as well as the form of alcohol in terms of it being quite high in sugar, because a lot of calories with it, with no uh, nutritional content. Again, it, it kind of fuels uh, uh, the, the lifestyle issues of our time, be it obesity. So taking all these things into account, it, it's very hard for me to say it's fine to have a glass of red wine every now and then or like, you know, like every two or three days because I know, A, it's very hard to maintain just that little amount of alcohol because we live in a drinking culture in the UK and B, the potential downside effects of, of alcohol per se. So that's sort of like my opinion on alcohol. It might change, who knows, but... I'm definitely of the perspective that we should be moving alcohol free. Yeah, it's interesting. It's one of those, the, one of the many examples in the field that you're in where it's being aware of what our attitudes are towards certain things. Um, and, and something you, you got on there is how hard it is to maintain a behavior, maintain a habit or whatever. Mm. And, and that's the, such a big thing with diet. I mean, something, one of the principles around the doing effect is about compounding days. So, you know, if you work hard or do whatever you're doing or work on something over a number of days, then it builds into something uh, really yeah. special. 
and that's you know that is kind of walks hand in hand with diet because diet is about consistency right but how do yeah i mean people must ask you all the time how do you maintain um consistency habit and that's for you but also you know in terms of making a success of your own stuff but um yeah but you know people must ask you about that in terms of diet as well right De- definitely yeah i think that that sort of compounding effect of effort it is something really important so if you look at it from a financial point of view you know, if you're making a 1% gain, it doesn't sound like very much, but if you compound that over 10 years then you're looking at quite a healthy outcome um, in terms of return. And it's the same thing with habits. You really have to think of, okay, A, what is the habit that you want to achieve and what, what are the motivations behind that? Are they genuine motivations or are they short-term? Are they long-term? Is this something that's going to positively impact your health or be at the detriment of it? So a habit that I've started uh, taking more sort of notice of is, is journaling. And when I look at journaling, and this is just writing down your feelings in the morning or uh, a gratitude, or I've always done gratitude, but it's kind of like um, a bit more forward thinking rather than reflective. Um, and so for, for that to instill as a habit, I think of the minimum amount of effort I need to put in and the thing that I can promise myself that I can do for a minimum of 14 days? What is the minimum amount of work that I can do that I can promise myself that I'll do every single day and not miss a day? And that might be writing two sentences in the morning, first thing when waking up. I can promise myself I'll do that. And when you, when you do that and you complete that 14 days, it instills as a habit and you can compound extra habits onto that so you habit stack. So this, the thing with alcohol is, you know, uh, if you habitually drink after work um, on a Friday, can you swap that for a non-alcoholic uh, drink or maybe even reducing that to half the amount that you tend to drink? So if you have a bottle of red wine between you, yourself and your partner on the Friday, can you promise yourself to have half of that or swap it for something completely different on that one day and then promise to do that for you know the next month? That's an example of a, a habit that can be compounded over time to change your, your overall sort of lifestyle. Um, and that, that's the way I, I see it through a whole bunch of different habits. Love that. That's really useful. Um, shifting it over to my world for a second, if that's all right. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's something diet is a big part of being an athlete because people connect it out with what you eat is, is going to benefit you or not in your performance. Okay, so a lot of the my career has been spent, right? What do I need to put in my body so that I can then perform the best on the pitch? Um, and it's amazing the kind of avenues you can be led down <laughs> in the professional sporting yeah. world around this. But only relatively recently have I kind of also held that hand in hand with thinking, yes, what's best for my performance, um, but also what's good for my health. And actually those two things might be the same. And I know that sounds odd, but um, mm. I mean, naturally there are things as a rugby player that aren't good for your health. I mean, running into big physical beings you know at high speeds is not good for your health yeah. i don't think anyone would recommend <laughs> that um yeah. but i think when it comes to diet and this is something that's probably missing in the performance space a bit actually there's what looked good for um someone who isn't a professional athlete in terms of diet is probably mm. not that far removed from what's good for an athlete as well yeah it, like i mean i know i don't know if, the, if you've worked with any athletes or looked into this space a huge amount but what are your views on that for people who want to eat for their sporting performance? 
Yeah, so it's a really good topic because I think we are very different depending on um, our energy expenditure, on the form of sport that we perform. Um, and, you know, this is where like uh, protein powders and other sports performance um, products have, have really tried to to tackle this and, and try to attract your layperson consumer. And I, I don't think it's appropriate for someone who works in an office or at home these days, who's not really moving that, that much around to be marketed to all these different sports things that are more, you know, geared towards someone like yourself, someone whose job is to train and to, you know, throw themselves into other big people, you know, and, and risk injury. Well, I, mean, I do and, try and, and avoid them if I can, if I can, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah no, occasionally you get yeah. stuck in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I think it's really, really varied. Um, on the face of it, in terms of like, if you're looking at longevity versus performance, I think that there are two different things because you can eat to uh, fuel your um, your performance and your your career span, you know, w- will be for that defined period of time. But if you're looking at longevity, then actually it might look quite different. So when I, because my experience is, is more on the patient side of things, I'm thinking, okay, how can I extend this person's health span as well as lifespan? Health span being the, the less than the risk that they will fall into a lifestyle-related illness like cancer, like type 2 diabetes, metabolic issues, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas for, if I'm through the lens of a sports person, I'm like, okay, how can I squeeze out that extra 1%? But that might be the detriment of all the other things that I, I think about from, from the perspective of a patient. The, um, talking about our environment uh, with rugby, our team doctor uh, that we work with, a uh, lady called Dr. J, Dr. GB as we call her. And I think you'd be a fan <laughs> of her because she combines really nicely. She works in A&E and, uh, as well as working with us. And she combines really nicely the, the uh, medicinal value of, of food and, and natural products. Mm. And sometimes you'll go in and if you've got like swelling in a joint or something, one of the first things she'll say is like, what's your turmeric intake like at the moment? Yeah. Like, are you getting that into your diet? And I love that. And that's something that has really resonated with me because it's like, well, that's something that I can control for a start, which is mm. something we're all looking to grab. It's like, actually, you know, I might not be able to, I can't perform surgery or I can't drain my own knee, maybe or whatever like that, but I can control <laughs> what I'm eating. And, uh, and I think that's something that's really powerful. And I just thought I'd kind of chuck that in there. Um, I, I think that's a really good point, actually, just to, just to expand on that, because um, what, what you're describing there is what's in your locus of control. What, what you're able to control is really, really empowering. And I think when people understand the impact and the power of food, it gives them that motivation that they don't need to be reliant on, oh, I've got to go to the doctor, I've got to book an appointment and I need to take these pills and I don't like taking these pills because of the side effects. There are things that you can do like, yeah, taking turmerics, turmeric, whether that be in uh, food or in a supplement form, you can increase your intake of nitrate vegetables. You can eat things that will reduce your risk of injury and improve recovery. You can do things like monitor your sleep and maximize um, all the different lifestyle uh, things you can do to optimize sleep. So I think that's really empowering. Um, and, and a lot of people should should take, take that into consideration. Are you hopeful that given the current sort of climate we're in with the pandemic, and I know you've, you've posted about this recently. Are you hopeful that that is, might be the stimulus for people to think, well, what's in my, 
you know, what can I control in terms of benefiting my health? I mean, do you, short, short answer, do you think that this will be a, a good stimulus? Yeah, I think this is like a black swan event where people will reassess what's actually important and what actually, what actually derives wealth. And I think people already have come around to the idea that, um, you know, your health is something that you, we've taken for granted and we can improve it and maintain it with food and other lifestyle means. So, yeah, I, I hope so. Hope so. There is hope. There is hope. Um, <laughs> There's, I mean, I'm sort of just, there's loads of stuff I'd love to get into, but obviously the beauty of um, just being able to signpost people towards your podcasts, your Instagram, your website, so that they can learn and dig into how to eat better for mental health, how to eat better to aid their sleep. And these are all things that people, mm. um, and it's not about, I think what you present is not about finding a panacea and a fix all for these things, but actually just how can we find small things to to help and i'd also love to get into the subject of nutrigenetics which is a new word that i learned yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but that, that kind of stuff blows my mind so people can go and research that on your pages if um if they're interested but mate, so many amazing lessons there not only from your own journey about how you've got to this point and what's motivated you but the the real tangible takeaways for people which i think is so beneficial um as we said at the top it's something that everyone can relate to and everyone, and I'm going to take some stuff away from what we've talked about, uh, and hopefully other people will as well. Just by way of kind of wrapping up, what we always like to do is, using your imagination, if you were going to take yourself away with your best mates or your family, your favorite people, whoever you want, and you get a case of Days beers, and you can go anywhere in the world to go and enjoy them. I know you've already mentioned being in the hot sun in Australia. Yeah. So maybe that's it. But <laughs> you can go anywhere you want with your case of beers to enjoy them. Where would you go? I'd probably go to the post office uh, in Manly, um, which is, uh, people probably think that's really weird. Like the po what do you mean the post office? So the post office is this little patch of grass right by Manly Wharf. Um, and it looks out onto the Sydney Harbour. Uh, and uh, I just remember so many days just spent there after work or whatever with a whole bunch of people. Um, yeah. And my girlfriend's Australian. So we, we try and go back every year, obviously not last year. Um, so I, I'd most likely take a case there. Although, yeah, my friends will probably want the alcoholic version. <laughs> I mean, I'll stick with the base version. But <laughs> I know, I actually, I know that spot. I know that spot. Good choice. It's a yeah, beautiful, it's, it's a beautiful good. part of the world. And then, and to finish off, we will cheers to something, whatever is important to you right now. Uh, what did I cheers to? Oh, cheers, uh, to, um, wealth and happiness. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Wealth and happiness. Nice. Cheers to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>